Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show today. We have the distinct pleasure to return, to have returned to the show, Mr. Brian McLaren. How are you, sir? Hey, great to be back with you. Yeah. I'm doing great. Down in Florida. What, uh, Marcos, what is the name of the, the town that you're in? Yeah, Marco Island. If you get on the west coast of Florida, it's the last place where people live. We're right at the edge of the Everglades. Wow. When, when is uh, hurricane season down there? It's basically June through October. Okay, so you- so we, yeah, we're we're in the in the calm season now. We got hit with Irma a couple of years ago. In fact, I looked at the map, and the eye went right over my house. So, are you uh, serious? Yeah, we had 140 mile an hour winds. It was uh, yeah, it was a lot of damage. But uh, we're we're back to normal now, and wow. uh, we'll just see see when the next one comes <laughs> i i lived in uh, panama city florida my first job out of seminary back in uh 2006 7 or something like that and yeah. the uh we, we still go back there we have friends there still obviously and uh uh the neighborhood that i used to live in was destroyed basically um yeah, yeah. With that hurricane um and it's matthew right? uh, yeah. what is the name i forgot the name of it, it but going back it, it uh it is unbelievable to see yeah. uh it's something I, I I can't even explain what it's like. To, I mean, yeah. but that's for someone who lives in Florida. Hurricanes are a normal part of life. It, yeah, they are. But you know, certain places really, it, it, like so many things in life, Luke, it has to do with economics. Um, you know, the places that are poor and vulnerable yep. when they get hit, it's so hard to come back. Uh, the places where there's a lot of wealth and a lot of business, usually, you know, they have the wherewithal to make a comeback, but. Uh, but it is, yeah, it's amazing to be in a place that's so calm and beautiful. And then for a six or eight hour period, you know, pandemonium, uh, uh, there, there's a uh, street one block away uh, that is about seven feet above sea level, no, about six feet above sea level. But there were two, uh, two to three feet of seawater on that road. So people were riding up and down the road in jet skis. Wow. <laughs> and uh, there were streets where... Uh, you know, you go down the street. In fact, it was the same way I was up. I was up in the Panhandle after that hurricane. But you know, all the trees are all laid down from east to west, and then you go a few minute, few miles later, they're all laid down from west to east, and you can just see the kind of footprint of the storm. It's amazing. It, it's really amazing. It, it is. It is truly crazy. Um, our, our friends that we uh, often go out to see them in the summer, they have a lake house. Um, try to think, uh, forty five minutes north from uh, the coast. And the water reserve table, I don't understand the right word, has changed so drastically that the pond has taken on substantial amount of water. And now the shoreline is, what, 50, 75 feet away from where it used to be, and it won't go back. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. unbelievable stuff. But you, you've migrated from, like, the D.C. area. Was it Baltimore, That's Virginia? That's right. right? I- that's right, Baltimore, Maryland. Yeah, I, I was born in upstate New York, and then I lived in Maryland most of my life. Now I'm in Florida. I don't know where I go from here. Maybe I'll be in Cuba uh, or Yucatan Peninsula next. We'll see. I mean, you kind of are a stereotype. I mean, you retired in Florida to some degree, but as someone who was born in Philadelphia, I would make the same move if I could. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't actually retire. I, I moved down here when I was 50, so, <laughs> or uh, about uh, 50-something. Mm-hmm. So... Um, but yeah, uh, we we moved down here and actually then moved my parents down here with us, and then I had care of my parents for the for five years, mm. 
for their last five years of life. So hmm. that was a good, good, good setup. Well, uh, I'm glad to hear that. Glad to hear that. So th- you have a new book out, uh, the Galapagos. I-, I feel like I'm always saying that word wrong. Say it right for me one time. Yeah, that's good. Galapagos. Okay. Yeah. Okay, you said it better than me anyway. Okay, but uh, backstory is our mutual friend, Tony Jones, over at Fortress Press, calls you up and says, hey, I can pay for you to make this trip, uh, and and you're going to write this spiritual journey um, describing your experience over there. And I'm thinking to myself, I want someone to pay for me to go spend a time on an island for however long and write a book about it. So um, if you could send my contact over to Tony and tell him that I'm interested. Sure. Oh, right, all right, you You'd never know. He might say, uh, yeah, we, we want to send you to Siberia, Luke, and uh, see what you'll write there. Yeah, that's like, why so. I'm not writing for Fortress Press, because I don't fully trust Tony. <laughs> uh, he's a good dude and all that. But uh, anyway, so you, you get this great opportunity. You go back. You've been, had, had you been there once before? I had, yeah. I'd, I'd been there with one of my sons. And you, you do this uh, one big trip with your kid. That, that was your yes. kind of parental setup thing? Yeah, with I, we had my wife and I had four kids, and um, and we while they were young, we said uh, that we would save money, and before each of them graduated from high school, I would try to take them somewhere outside the country, so they would get a passport, and we'd go on an adventure, just the two of us. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we had a, each kid, we had a, a, an amazing adventure, and uh, uh, and one of my sons, uh, he he was a uh, cancer survivor. And uh, so it was kind of a special trip. You know, we'd had we'd had some rough years where mm-hmm. his health was so fragile and uh, we went there together. And then 17 years later, I went back by myself hmm. to write this book. Where did the other three kids choose to go? My oldest daughter, uh, uh, I, I had to do some speaking in Europe. And so she and I toured around southern Europe after a speaking gig I did. Mm. Um, my next son, he and I uh, explored Costa Rica. We had some unbelievable adventures back in the rainforest and um, just amazing time. And then my youngest daughter went to Africa with me. And so we started in South Africa, ended up in uh, Burundi, East Africa, wow. which was a place that at that in those years, the, the uh, State Department was saying no American should go there. So it was a, a little dicey, but we, we had a great, great experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, trying to do the timeline on that. But yeah, it, uh, there was some stuff that was going on there during that time. Yeah, wow. yeah. A, a lot of people know about the Rwandan genocide um, that killed somewhere 700 to uh, uh, 800,000 people in 100 days. Burundi actually had about a million and a quarter people killed. It was just instead of one massive uh, uh, genocide. It was a, a series of about five of them. Yeah. But, you know, it's so amazing to be in a place where these horrible atrocities happen and yet you meet the people and they're wonderful people. Yeah. It, it's just this sort of reminder that uh, all of us were more fragile than than we realize. And, uh, and it makes you realize how important it is to try to build in kind, not only personal virtue, but mm-hmm. Uh, social virtue. Yeah, no, I, I was talking to a, a friend of mine named Ram John who was from Rwanda uh, just a couple of days ago, and we we're talking about something, an opportunity to get together and laugh. And he goes, Yeah, and that we have the peace in a country to do something like this. And he just made it this like throwaway statement like that, which I would say, Oh, yeah, I'm glad we have the ability to do this. But his background is living through a genocide, and yeah. it puts things, like you said, in a, a whole new perspective. Yeah. Um, so you, you've had uh, 
great trips with all four of your kids and including one of your, your cancer su- surviving son uh, took you down here uh, 17, 18 years ago and you get to go back and you get to write this book. And uh, as you're beginning the book, you talk about the influence of indoor theology uh, yeah. versus outdoor theology. And you're someone who, from the very beginning, you've been an avid outdoorsman from since you yeah. were a kid up in New York. And um, yeah. b- But many of us who are pastors... Are more uh, we we feel more comfortable in a library than yes uh, you know on a remote island. What do you think yeah. that does to the way that we describe God? And as we're picturing who the creator of the universe is, how, how is that influenced by spending so much of our time indoors compared to being outdoors? Yeah, well, it, it's kind of interesting when you think about it, Luke. Um, so the book of Genesis begins with God creating the world. So the first word of God's, you know, God spoke and there was light. God spoke and there was the sun. God spoke and there were stars. God's first word uh, wasn't words on a page. It was uh, it was creation. And um, but the Christian religion, sometime early in our history, you know, second, third, fourth century, we became very enamored with Greek philosophy. And in Greek philosophy, um, the external world is seen as transitory, full of change and material. And we and and in Greek philosophy, the idea is that what is immaterial and changeless uh, and we might say abstract is is more uh, of, of greater value. And I think our Christian heritage has followed that that Greek philosophy uh, that pattern of Greek philosophy a lot more than we have followed uh, our, our Hebrew roots, seeing God as Creator, um, and one of the one of the results of this is that we end up with a theology that is very very much about words, uh, and in some ways I think this is changing even in my lifetime. But when when I was young and you started learning about God. The first thing you did was learn some big, you know, polysyllabic words, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, uh, impassable, and so on. And uh, But very different if we start with creation and say, uh, you know, imagine we often have Bible studies. We want to read the Bible, which I'm all for. But wouldn't it be interesting to say, let's go sit by the beach and see what the sea is telling us, see what the changing of the tides is trying to tell us about God and our, our place in the universe. Let's watch the bees pollinate the the fruit trees and see what that's trying to tell us. Yeah. Well, I know St. Francis would be very happy with us if we did more of that. Um, yeah. I wonder if it would also change the way that we engage with sacraments, if there is a yeah. greater view of the what we can touch and see and smell. Yes. You think so? Yes, I think so. In fact, um, one of my uh, kind of literary inspirations was Flannery O'Connor, and Flannery O'Connor said something to this effect, that the purpose of a sacrament is to go into a place where one speci- one material object is is given to us to convey spiritual truth. But the goal is that we would leave that place and see every physical object, every created thing. Yeah conveying spiritual truth. And and that engenders, it can engender, if we let it, a whole sacramental view of life where we see the sacredness of everything. And in some ways, that's that was what writing this book gave me a chance to do, to just be somewhere with no other agenda than to observe and try to be a witness, you know, to the 
the glory that was uh, that was being revealed. What do you? What did you go into the process doing to help perpetuate the observational nature of what you want to be doing? To just go there and observe mm. and to see things. Uh, I guess the writing process. Maybe every night you're doing this, or what was the thing that helped you uh, have your eyes awake to what was around you? What well, was interesting, my editor, <coughs> um, who we mentioned, Tony Jones. Um, uh, I, I kept saying, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to do this? And he just basically said, just trust yourself as a writer. Just see what happens. So um, in, in one sense, I, I was a little frustrated. Why isn't he giving me more guidance? But he was actually giving me a real gift yeah. to say, trust trust your intuition and just see what happens. So um, the rhythm that I ended up falling into is I would get up early. There was a little place on the upper deck. We I, One of the ways to tour the islands is on a boat. Um, and it, that way, you know, you don't have a footprint on the land. You, you, uh, I was on a small boat with 16 passengers and every night they motor to a different Island and then you wake up and do things on that Island and then you go to the next one the next day. And, um, so I would get up early and, uh, start writing. And then I, in the evening, I would go back up on the upper deck and do some more writing and through the day, uh, I kept I had a little journal and I would just be taking notes. And uh, so it just and, and in, in a way, I just felt the number one job I had was to observe, mm-hmm. uh, you know, observe color, observe texture, observe life, uh, observe drama, uh, just see what would present itself to me. Your everyday life uh, in Marcus Island in Florida uh, as you seem to describe some of the book, had you doing many of the same tasks of, of being outdoors, yes. uh, fishing, isn't that your thing you enjoy? I, I love to kayak. I love to fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then down here in the summer, I, uh, I, I'm a sea turtle monitor. So mm-hmm. I go out uh, once a week and, uh, we, you know, I'm part of a little team that monitors a stretch of beach for sea turtle nests. It's a lot of fun. Really? Okay. I, this past summer, I got a uh, opportunity to go visit some friends in Oahu, and uh, I, I got to speak at their church, and then of course they let me enjoy it, and it was just amazing. And to see a sea turtle up close and personal, uh, it was just, it was just it takes your breath away. It really it's, does. It's just it graceful, you know, uh, and just the colors and oh, everything it, it, about it is is wonderful. And of course, that the you know to go to a place like Hawaii, it has a lot in common with the Galapagos Islands. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that in many ways, islands like the Galapagos are so special to us because human beings have been there such a short time comparatively. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're starting to realize is that, you know, the 12 or 14,000 years that human beings have been in North and South America, we made our mark. And the 30 or 40,000 years that we were in Europe and Asia, we made our mark. And um, and uh, and to try to see what the world would be if we weren't, if we didn't have such a big footprint on it. Yeah. It's, that's part of the allure, I think. When some people use the phrase, made, made our mark, it can be seen as a positive thing. Uh, the way that uh, I think many of us would hear that is the mark that we've made on uh, the land that we inhabit isn't always the best mark. And... It seems as if the more mark we have, the less beauty we can see in nature. And, yeah. and so we talk about places like going to these islands and, and you're aware of nature, but nature is around each and every one of us, even if we're in Dallas, Texas, or where I live in Austin, Texas, or, or New York. But it, it seems that the human 
uh, existence kind of precludes us from missing what's naturally around us. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. This, to me, is the story that unfolds in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Um, Adam and Eve uh, are put on the scene, you know, in in the uh, creation story to be caretakers of a beautiful garden. And the the idea is they live within limits. I think that's what that tree Mm. is supposed to represent. They have the tree of life, absolute abundance, but also a tree that reminds them of their moral limits. And uh, in some ways, what human beings have been doing from, you know, time immemorial is we have been refusing any limits. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, and we keep taking more and more and more. And um, so now we're at the point in, in our history that, you know, we're starting to realize that, um, that we can surpass the limits that we could even survive. Uh, you probably heard the statistics uh, huge reduction in the in the if you if you want to talk about biomass, you know you add up the tons of of living creatures or pounds or whatever of living creatures, and we're reducing the biomass of insects, you know, sixty seventy percent in many places. And a lot of people think, oh, good riddance, until you think, hold it, you know, they've been around a lot longer than we have, and God seems to like them. God sure made a lot of them. And uh, and when you think that 30% of our calories come from pollinators, suddenly realize, hey, we, we need those insects yeah. around. And then huge impact on the number of mammals that are alive today. And uh, so, you know, we, at some point, we human beings have to realize that we, uh, we have to live respectfully with our fellow creatures, uh, including the plants and <clears throat> the oceans and all the rest. So, yeah, it's we're we're at this reckoning in human history, and uh, I, I, so far it looks like we're we're going to colossally fail the test. Yeah, this seems to be uh, a theme of your writing. I mean, I think the last time we had you on the podcast, you talked uh, about the idea of being a good neighbor. Uh, was yeah. uh, you use a metaphor of like living downstream from people, and uh, yes. one of the ways of being a good neighbor is you take care of the people who are down, like physically downstream from you. And yes. even back to obviously, I'm like most people uh, who read New Kind of Christian, and that was my first introduction to. You, and I felt like there are themes of care for the earth yeah. in that. Was yeah. was there an eye opening experience for you to change this, or was this from being uh, an outdoorsman since you were a kid? Well, that's yeah, a really interesting question. I, I don't know the answer. I, I mean, to me, it, it seems pretty inherent to who I am, you know. But the, the thing that's interesting to me, Luke, is that any of us who grew up with the Bible, we should have seen this from the start. I mean, we already talked about the, the Genesis story. You go a few chapters later to the flood story. Isn't it interesting that human beings, through their violent way of living, create ecological instability. And then uh, the, the man of God, Noah, uh, goes into the business of saving creatures. Um, so it's there in the book of Genesis. Then you go fast forward a few chapters, a few books, you get to the book of Leviticus, chapter after chapter about caring for the land, caring for the soil, making sure the land is given a rest, making sure that farm animals are taken care of. Like all of this stuff is there in scripture. But again, I think a lot of us inherited a theological framework that made all of that irrelevant. Um, and I think it, was, it's, it's, it has a lot to teach us uh, if we, if we you know, pay attention to it. I mean, even you go to the Gospels, 
Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the Gentiles, obviously referring to the Roman Empire, who are so full of anxiety. Um, And then he says, you know, don't follow the Gentiles. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. So he says, look, instead of imitating the imperial system, economic systems of this world, why don't you rejoin God's original ecosystem and learn your lessons from your fellow creatures? Why do you think that caring for the earth has become a politicized issue in America instead of a Christian hearing this and going, yeah, my... Uh, f- like the first calling of humanity was to care for the earth. And now yeah. it becomes, oh, well, you're just being political. Oh, you're just being left or right. And yeah. w- one of the things that uh, I- I've recently become aware of is uh, the deadly impact of uh, straws and the your beloved yeah. turtles and how they can end up in their noses. Yeah. And, uh, so now my youngest daughter says, no, I don't want a straw. I love turtles. And it, it kind of yes. becomes like, obviously that's an oversimplification, yeah, but yeah. single use plastic is clearly an issue. But when you yeah. talk about it, it sounds like you're saying, well, no, you're just being a, you know, a, you know, a Democrat and you're talking about, and yeah. instead of being like, no, no, this is a Christian issue that my religious yeah. conviction should lead me. Why do you think it hasn't been, uh, just remain as a, a religious calling of someone who follows the way of, of Jesus in the scriptures? So I think most people will have heard of the Citizens United ruling, which was a ruling that basically said that uh, business could have, that, 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 that hyper-rich people could have a disproportionate influence on political speech, that their free speech meant that because they have more money, in a sense, they can turn that money into power and influence. Well, what a lot of people don't realize is that there has been Citizens United in the church for, you know, 1,300 of our, our, or 1,700 of our 2,000 years, meaning that rich people make big donations to churches. And then it's very hard for pastors to speak about things that when rich people are making their, the, the rich people who are donors are making their money off of those things. So you live in Texas. It would be very hard to speak about fossil fuels in Texas. Um, you know, compared to if you lived in, I don't know, Maine or something, right? Um, so so I, I think this is the reason. I think it's money. And uh, suddenly, you know, all the things that Jesus said about money, you realize, oh man, he wasn't just trying to be hard on us. He was trying to save us because if we only value things based on money, uh, then we're in a lot of trouble. We have to learn that that, mo- that money is a very bad measure of true values. Yeah. And uh, so I think that's that's a big part of the problem. It's not just that it's political. It's that it's economic. And economics, in many ways, calls the shot shots for politics. Yeah. Well, since you brought up oil, and I am a pastor in Texas, I'm going to change the subject because I want to keep my job. <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But... Uh, <laughs> that, is, that is pretty close to home. I, I started a church and... Uh, Years ago, and uh, the one of the supporting churches was from Midland, Texas. Midland is an oil town, and my yeah. biggest, uh, you know, personal mentor and uh, f- you know, uh, financial supporter uh, had an oil company, and uh, so it was. Yeah. yeah, it was. That's just normal part of life, and you get very, uh, very aware that these are people who are influenced by that industry, and, and definitely affects. I, I'm not saying that I didn't say anything, or they forced me to not say something, but when these are people who have a face and you know that their livelihood is connected to this, it does impact how you think about that. 
Yes. And, you know, I'm not interested in shaming anybody like it's easy to shame people in the uh, fossil fuel industry. But the fact is, all of us are part of that economy. Right. So it, it doesn't help to point fingers at certain people as if that makes the rest of us off the hook. Yeah. Um, but I think a, maybe a, an example that it would be wise for all of us, especially if we're American and especially for white, to think about is the way that slavery really built this nation. And, you know, it what didn't just build the South. You know, the, the, the uh, hands is what they were called. The slaves were called hands um, because that's all they were really valuable for. Um, they picked the cotton and then it was sent up to all the mills in the Northeast where where that cotton was uh, turned into textiles. So everybody was part of that economy. Mm -hmm. And I think we're in a situation that's similar to the time of slavery now. Um, It's just that we still are exploiting workers in many ways, but we're we're continuing to enslave or exploit the earth, oppress the earth. Mm -hmm. And we've got to find, yeah, we've got to find a, a more loving way of living with God's creation in its non-human and human forms. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there is a, the, there's something that probably comes up in some people's mind when they hear of these islands, which I still think I say them wrong, so I'm going to let you say it. But uh, when they hear about these islands, the first figure that might <clears throat> come to mind, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, that might come to mind is Charles Darwin uh, because of yes. his connection to these islands. And d- didn't you read some of... Uh, Yes. Darwin, while you were on this trip? I did, yeah. In fact, um, you know, Darwin uh, did not come up with a theory of evolution while he was in the Galapagos Islands, but he took all kinds of samples and made all kinds of notes when he was on an around-the-world voyage as a young man. And some days after leaving the Galapagos Islands, sailing west across the Pacific, he wrote in his journal that um, if there is... <laughs> Excuse me. It's contagious, that cough. If there is a, it is, that's right. If there's any validity to the idea of evolution, because he didn't come up with the idea. It was an idea already in circulation. Um, if there's any validity to it, um, I, I, I should spend a lot of time pondering what I observed in the Galapagos Islands. And that he is exactly what he did over the coming decades. And so um, I, I read The Origin of the Species. Uh, so I think I started before I went and then finished while I was on the trip and um, continued to do a lot of reading and research about Darwin. And in fact, two of the favorite, my favorite chapters in the book, in fact, probably two of my favorite chapters of anything I've ever written were chapters where I got to write about Darwin and evolution. Really? Why is that? Why are they your favorite? Well, first, he's just such an interesting person. You know, if you ever read Origin of the Species, it's actually quite well written. And but what the feeling you get is this guy was sincere, like he was going to take every bit of data seriously. He was going to trace down every possible argument against his theory. And, uh, you know, he 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 just impresses you as a diligent and dutiful and honorable human being. Um, when I read, uh, uh, you know, some of his biography and autobiography, what other pe- other people who met him were also deeply Im- impressed by him. Uh, he was a very loving father, and he was deeply sad man because I think he realized how much trouble he would get into because of his theory, and I think he realized how much disruption it would cause. 
Um, and I, I think he also had a sense of how it wasn't just the theory of evolution in biology. Um, in, ge- in geology, there was this radical rethinking of geology. And, and it wasn't, you know, one generation later, uh, Albert Einstein is coming along with new theories in phys- physics. And, and the whole world was just being, our whole understanding of the world was being overturned in, in you know, a matter of a century or so. Is, and I think he felt the trauma of that. That doesn't probably fit with the uh, <coughs> caricature of Darwin that many who've grown up in a conservative or fundamentalist uh, religious environment have been given about Darwin. Uh, that he was this you know terrible person who wanted to destroy Christianity, but the the way you've described him, even in the book, as you're just saying, isn't that at all? It comes across a very gen- genuine, likable guy, and y- you include something about uh, an interaction that he has with uh, his wife. Was her name Emma? Is that right? Yes, Emma, yes. Uh, who, who was his first cousin? I didn't know that, but I guess that's appropriate back then for first cousins. That was a lot more. It was a lot. In fact, it, in some ways, the, the marrying of cousins has been a big deal in European history. It was a way to keep wealth in the family. (laughs) Hmm. Well, I'm glad my family didn't try to stay wealthy. Um, But nevertheless, so he marries her, and she comes to figure out, or he communicates to her of his his doubt, of of his doubt in God. And she has this beautiful discourse that that you include in the book of her response uh, to his doubt that I found like this this three-step response was so good. It was spot on. It it really was beautiful. and, you know, she urged him to focus on Jesus and focus on Jesus' teaching. And, um, and, uh, and, and yet she had a feeling that that wasn't going to work for him. And after they got married, um, for some years he went, he, he uh, would go, they would go to the Anglican church. Uh, and then he, he would just drop her and the children off and then he would walk and then meet them after church and they would walk home again. Um, he he, uh, he really struggled. He really he was a man of honest doubt, mm-hmm. and uh, and and uh, I think so many people today, you know, struggle with honest questions and honest doubt. And it's another reason why he, to me, is such an attractive figure. Yeah, it, she the way I kind of shorthanded it. She said three things to him: one, that doubt was okay; that that doubt and faith can yeah. go together. To, to decentralize the more problematic texts in Scripture. And then she said, well, I think it was like John 13, to, to focus on love. Yeah. And I, I'm going to, like, that would be my exact response. Like, I've literally written a book, basically said the same stuff as that. Because uh, I think she's, she's yes. spot on. I do too, yeah. And, yeah. Well, I, I, think, um, I think for Charles, there were so many levels to this. The, one of the big struggles for Charles was, uh, was the existence of evil and suffering in the world, and um, but and, and also he he was left, you know, his the version of Christianity that was available to him didn't leave him the kind of room that probably you and I would have today. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he his option was was pretty well defined, yeah. and a lot of people don't know he was actually planning to be a priest. Uh, at, when he was in the Galapagos Islands, he he thought this was a little interlude of a world voyage, and then he would go back and uh, go to seminary and become a priest. You know what he probably needed? He needed a new kind of Christianity. That's what he needed. <laughs> there it is. Well, <laughs> you know, one of the huge problems he faced was uh, this idea 
the, the, the uh, uh, an idea of God as a kind of dictator, yeah. and uh, and I think what's happened in the in this you know 150 plus years since Darwin is that we have had permission to stop thinking about God as a dictator who controls everything, mm. and um, a, a lot of us have an understanding now of God being more integrally involved in the universe, including in the suffering of the universe, that that nothing suffers without God's empathy and without God actually feeling that pain as well. And of course, for us as Christians, this connects very naturally with our understanding of the cross, that in the cross, God is revealed as love that suffers because of, uh, of solidarity with all, with all human. And, and we would, I don't think I have a problem adding all suffering of all of life. Yeah. Hmm. That's good. Uh, so you uh, you mentioned a second ago that you love sea turtles, and yeah. in the book you also talked about tortoises, which yes, you can only find those. What is it? Two places? There, giant tortoises are only found in two island chains. Yeah, one in the Indian Ocean, and and then the Galapagos Islands. Do you yeah. feel like? Sea turtles are jealous that you also like tortoises. Is there like some competition uh, there? I don't know. I I don't think I don't think I think they have very small ego. Mm. I don't think they're worried about that. So <laughs> when I went uh, to Hawaii this past summer, the thing I wanted to see was sharks. I've I've been a shark yes. fan since I was a kid. Yes. Uh, my fifth birthday, my mom made me a shark birthday cake, and so I was able to go. And actually, the, the people that I went to see in Hawaii, their daughter actually interns for some shark researchers that I followed on Instagram for years. Um, and so I got to meet them and go go uh, do some free diving with sharks a couple times. It was amazing for me. Oh, that's so great. I, I assume your experience with the tur- tortoises was similar to you, being able to... Yes, and, and I should tell you, I love all kinds of creatures. And in fact, I participated in a shark study down here in the Everglades. Really? So I, I've gone out quite a few times with a biologist who... Uh, catches sharks and we weigh them and take a blood sample from mm-hmm. them and uh, it's it's quite exciting. But uh, where I live uh, is actually kind of the nursery for sharks uh, 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 from all over the Gulf of Mexico. So uh, you know, in in a in an evening, uh, I could see probably six or seven, eight different kinds of sharks in one evening. So yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. And well, thanks for bragging. Creature, you thanks know? for bragging about that. Uh, you know, I'm uh, well, jealous. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it really is amazing, and I share your your fascination with sharks. They really are amazing, amazing creatures, and and uh, oh my goodness, so graceful, and and you know they're given this reputation of being vicious killers and all that. And, you know, they're just like any other creature. They're, they they have their role to play. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the image, but uh, uh, there's a husband and wife team. Uh, Juan. And her, uh, his wife is named Ocean Ramsey, and there's a shot of Ocean Ramsey swimming with this 20-foot white shark uh, about a year ago off Oahu. And that, those are the people that I went to go see. And seeing oh them in the like, and getting to be in the water and seeing these sharks near you, it's just, it's a symbol. Anyway, um, I didn't mean to go on a rant about that. But, so, uh, tortoises, you love them. Obviously, you love everything. But you make the, uh, a move in a section, you're talking about tortoises about uh, tortoises and religion. There's a, a comparison yes. you make, that there are some humans who are trying to save tortoises and others that are just kind of oblivious or even doing things, maybe even intentionally, that are harbor or hurting their future. And you ask the question, are there some, some people today who are doing the same thing with religion? Some are trying to save it, and others are just being callous and flipping about its future. 
yeah. I thought that was a very fitting uh, comparison. W- would you kind of flesh out more the idea of how some of us are are maybe trying to harbor a future that's that's healthier and, and uh, creates an environment for religion to flourish in the future? Sure. Well, you know, when you talk to people, uh, Luke, who are against religion, they're almost always against it for good reasons. You know, you, you never hear people say, yeah, I hate religion. They teach people to love their neighbor. Um, what they don't like is when... When, when people use religion to hate their neighbor, they use religion to judge their neighbor, they use religion to uh, justify destroying the earth, you know, people would be surprised how many, uh, how many people say, oh, Jesus is coming back, God's going to burn up the world anyway, we might as well return it empty. I mean, yeah. I, I can't tell you how often I still hear that. So, uh, so uh and, and sadly, there are a lot of people, you know, you can make money with religion. You can stroke your ego with religion. You can get a lot of power and fame with religion. So, like every other good thing, religion can be abused. But then there are other people that realize if, um, if some people leave religion because they're disaffected and other people exploit religion for selfish purposes— then who is actually going to try to heal religion and help it have its needed role in our world? And I, I personally think, you know, we will not be a better species if we eradicate religion or if we only leave it to the hucksters and charlatans. So that's why I think some of us have this love for religion and we're trying to help it become, help, help it survive in, in the best way it can. Hmm. That's good. That's good. One of the things you say uh, at the beginning of the book is that uh, your wife, whose name is Grace, is that right? Yes, that's that right. Uh, she's not as interested in this kind of stuff as not the religion stuff, not but the all, no. uh, the nature stuff. She's obviously uh, I'm not saying that about her religion, yeah. but uh, nature, not so much. So she doesn't go on the trip with you. No, and uh, y- you like to be out uh, on your canoe. You like fishing. Uh, y- you like doing the shark tags. You like seeing the sea turtles, and she doesn't want to do that with you. No, it's not her not thing. Not her thing. How do you guys make it work after, uh, how long have you guys been together now? Oh, let's see, uh, 40, 40 years, uh, going on 41 years. So wow. uh, I, I think it. I think it's going to last. Think so? I think we're going to make it. You, you yeah. made it four decades. Uh, how does it work when your interests are so different? Well, I, I mean, our, our, our interests in that area are different, but we certainly have a lot of common interests. We are super invested in four amazing young adults and, uh, and their significant others, and we're super invested in five grandchildren that we share. So that's a pretty big deal. Um, and we share a big spiritual you know, commitment, and uh, so that's another area that we share. But, you know, I, I think this varies from couple to couple, but I think one of the things that uh, that a whole lot of couples work out one way or another is they say part of our marriage is giving each of us freedom to be individuals too. So, you know, my partner doesn't have to have exactly the same interests that I do and vice versa. And part of the way we love each other is by giving each other the freedom to have our own individual interests um, and uh, to make space for each other in that way. And, you know, for some couples, that's not an issue because they actually, uh, I, I have a friend, the uh, first time I met him, I said, what do you like to do for fun? He said, really, the honest truth is anything I do with my wife is what I like. <laughs> that's good. Um, and and uh, I thought, well, that's beautiful, you know. But, uh, but you know, a, a big part of 
love is saying, I want to be sure you get to do the things that you enjoy, uh, e- even if that means that's something we do separately. Mm-hmm. So she wanted you to have the space to be able to go do this. And you go on this trip, come back, you write the book, and, uh, and she's giving you space for it. So that's good. It worked out just fine. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. good. And, you know, she, uh, and, and in fact, one of the things we've just been talking about recently, one of the things my wife loves is she loves learning. And so, uh, you know, she just went to a conference a couple weeks ago by herself that she was interested in going to. And so, you know, that, th- there are ways that, that that enriches our marriage. She goes and learns something and has something that stimulates her intellectually, and, uh, and she brings that joy back to the marriage. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, uh, the new book is The Galapagos Islands, A Spiritual Journey. In, in Europe, it has a different title, doesn't it? The title in the UK is God Unbound, Theology in the Wild. It's a nice That's title. That's a pretty good title. Why did, wh- wh- it, no. Explain why there's two different titles. Well, um, you know, the American publisher commissioned the book and they wanted this as the title because they're starting a series. They're going to have some other people go to other places. I think they're going to send you to Siberia. No. And, no. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but the UK, when they were interested in the rights, they just said, you know, uh, uh, we, we'd like to give another title. Fair enough. So, yeah. Fair enough. It's funny how these things work. Yeah, out. yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's the publishing industry. But you've been doing that for a long time. How many books do you have out now? I think this is 19 or 20. <laughs> 19 or 20. Somewhere well, in there. Well, that is great. Well, uh, many of us have read many of those books, and they've been huge encouragement to us. So we're grateful for that, and we hope that you continue to write. This one uh, was a lot of fun to read. And uh, even if you're not like a, hey, I love being on the islands kind of person like me, I think you'll still like it. So go get it, people. Anyway, Brian, as always, it is a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for the time. I look forward to the next time. Keep up the good work. Yes, sir. Right, thank Thanks you. for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to Brian. subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>